Welcome back to class, everyone. As you know by now, I'm Dorothy Doty. I'm your instructor for this series of video lectures on continents. Now, in the last, last class, we talked about normal voiding and all of the factors that work together to provide us with control over bladder and sphincter function. In this class, we're going to begin our discussion of abnormal conditions. We're specifically going to talk about the prevalence of bladder dysfunction. We're going to talk about the impact of bladder dysfunction. We're going to spend time discussing factors that can be reversed, but that frequently play a role in bladder dysfunction. And then we're going to conclude with an overview of the different types of incontinence and voiding dysfunction that you'll encounter in clinical practice. So let's begin by talking about the prevalence and the impact. Because you probably haven't heard that much about continence care and measures to restore continence, even though as a nurse you have certainly taken care of many, many patients who have bladder control problems or who have urinary retention. We don't have complete data on this topic. The, the data we do have clearly indicates this is a huge problem. So look at your stats there, 20 to 50% of community dwelling elderly individuals have problems with bladder control. These are the people you pass in the grocery store, these are the people you go to church with, these are the people you might be in gym class with. 47 to 70% of institutionalized elderly are documented as having problems either with incontinence or with retention. And even though those numbers look really high, they are believed to represent underreporting. Many people never tell their primary care provider that they have a problem with bladder control because many people believe nothing can be done about it and it's embarrassing, so why bring it up? And when you talk to primary care providers, they admit that many times they don't specifically ask about incontinence because they feel as if they have nothing to offer. So why bring up a topic if you can't make things better? We know it's a very costly issue. This is old data, but the old data indicates that at least $19.5 billion are spent annually in the U.S. for continence management. Sadly, most of those dollars go to absorbent products. There's not enough going to research and to diagnosis and to primary management. And we'll keep, we will keep coming back to that. You'll hear that over and over. Now, I think you already know the impact and the implications for nursing. Certainly, we're aware that loss of bladder control has a major impact on quality of life and on your willingness to go place and do things and on your confidence. It affects everything from what kind of clothing you wear. Do you wear light clothing? Not if you're worried about a bladder leak. You only wear dark clothing. Where do you go? You always have to be close to a bathroom. Are you willing to fly? Maybe not. Are you willing to take a road trip? Hmm, really scary. So major impact on activities of daily living, major impact on self-esteem because continence is something we acquire as young children and it's very embarrassing to have an episode of urinary incontinence and it changes a lot of things for people and you will hear people tell you that they felt mortified, that they didn't want to go back to that place, they didn't want to be around those people. In addition, 
Incontinence is associated with increased risk of falls, increased risk of skin breakdown, and increased risk of urinary tract infections. So not only is it a psychosocial issue, it's also a med surge issue. And finally, and this is what most people don't know, most of the time, continence can be corrected. And always we can make things better for that individual. Even if we can't correct the incontinence, we can almost always help them find the best absorbent product, counsel them about skin protection, and help them problem solve their daily activities. As nurses, we're in a great position, and as continence nurses, you'll be in the very best position to help these people. So now let's talk about what causes incontinence, what causes retention. We're gonna begin with looking at the difference between transient incontinence and chronic incontinence. <coughs> Excuse me. So by definition, transient incontinence is reversible. It's expected to go away if it's correctly managed. So transient incontinence is typically characterized by sudden onset and great potential for cure. In contrast, established or chronic incontinence is incontinence that persists even after all of these reversible factors are corrected. We're going to talk about both types, but let's start by focusing on transient or reversible incontinence. Now by definition, this is either new and sudden onset of leakage or for some patients it's like, well you know, Really, I've been having some problems for a long time, but not that bad, nothing to really interfere with where I went or what I did. I just kind of wore a pad and didn't think that much about it. But over the last few weeks, it's been so much worse. I can't live like this, something has to happen. Okay, so that sudden worsening of a previously existing condition. Of very great importance is the fact that many, many patients who have long-standing bladder control issues, they have reversible factors that are making their condition worse. They don't even know about it. But when you assess them and you identify those reversible factors and you correct them, all of a sudden they're like, wow, I'm already so much better and we just did these few things. So that brings us to the most important point, and that is all patients with complaints of incontinence should be initially screened for reversible factors, whether this problem has been going on for three weeks, three months, or three years. Now established, we've already said, is incontinence that persists even after you correct reversible factors. So you know in healthcare, we always attach a time frame to something for it to be chronic or established. And in this case, they've attached six months. In reality, in clinical practice, we don't pay a lot of attention to this. If you come to me and you say, I've been having a lot of problems for three months, and your problems persist even after we've corrected reversible factors, we're going to move ahead with treatment. We're not going to make you sit around and be wet for three more months so that you meet that six-month indicator. But we just bring it up because that is the official definition of chronic or established incontinence. Of more importance to us is if you come to us and we work with you on reversible factors and then you come back and you're like, I'm definitely better, but I still have this problem. 
then we've got to figure out, well, what kind of problem do you have exactly? Is this a bladder issue? Is it a sphincter issue? Is it something outside the urinary tract? Once we identify the specific problem, we're in a really good position to make things better and to provide you with an effective treatment plan. Now, when we talk about reversible factors, there's a mnemonic that can be very helpful, and it's toileted. And it just reminds you, it's kind of like a mental checklist, okay, is this an issue, is this an issue, have I assessed for this, have I looked at that? So we're going to walk through toileted, we're going to look at each of these reversible factors, we're going to discuss the way in which they can contribute to incontinence, we'll briefly discuss management, but we will discuss management in greater detail in a later class. So right now, I just want you to get the big picture of what these reversible factors are and how they can contribute to loss of bladder control. So the first T stands for thin, dry, vaginal, and urethral epithelium. Many times you'll hear this referred to as urogenital atrophy or atrophic urethritis or atrophic vaginitis. Now we know that estrogen has a positive impact on vaginal health, and it turns out also on urethral health. So even though people don't realize it, you have estrogen, women have estrogen receptors along the urethral walls and at the base of the bladder. So when you get into estrogen deficiency, not only do you get thinning and drying of the vaginal lining, but you also get thinning and drying of the urethral lining and the base of the bladder neck. So we know that women who have low estrogen levels frequently report very uncomfortable sensations. They'll say, I've got my vagina feels dry and it just feels uncomfortable. It feels irritated. It feels inflamed. Sex is painful. What can I do? But at the same time that they're dealing with those symptoms that they recognize, they're probably dealing with some changes of which they're not so aware. And that is that now the urethral walls are less sticky. They don't cling to each other nearly as well. And so they're much more prone to leakage when they call for laugh or sneeze. A lot of women just think, oh, it goes with aging. Not necessarily. So this is all correctable. We can replace estrogen. We can improve the health of the urethral mucosa. The other thing that happens is when you get thinning and drying of the urethral walls and when you get thinning and drying of the base of the bladder, now you get inflammatory changes. So the bladder becomes inflamed and irritated and more likely to contract when it should be sitting and storing. So now you have women who tell you, well, I'm leaking when I call for laugh and you know, it seems like when I have to go to the bathroom, I have to go right then. It doesn't seem like I have as much warning as I used to have. And sometimes if I don't get there in time, I leak. What could be going on? And the common denominator for all of that could be low estrogen levels, loss of urethral coaptation, increased urethral and bladder irritability. What are we looking for? How do we know this is an issue? Well. The patient's reports tell us a lot. And then our physical exam is going to confirm that that is indeed a problem. So we're gonna see vaginal mucosa that is dry 
and non-rugated. It may be pale or may be bright red and inflamed. We might see that urethral caruncle. What is a urethral caruncle? It's abnormally hypertrophic, prominent urethral meatus. The patient is probably talking to us about urgency and frequency and possibly pain with urination. And interestingly, but not surprisingly, older women frequently report increased incidence of urinary tract infections. Now, most of these studies were done in long-term care facilities. But if you start talking to your community-dwelling older women, if they have atrophic changes in the urethra, and if you ask them about urinary tract infections, you will frequently find that yes, they are indeed experiencing increased frequency of urinary tract infections because that thinned out urethral lining doesn't resist bacterial adherence and bacterial migration nearly as well. And because loss of estrogen changes the pH in the vagina and allows pathogens to proliferate. So putting it all together, estrogen deficiency, atrophic urethritis can contribute both to stress incontinence because you don't have the same degree of urethral resistance, and it can contribute to what we call overactive bladder, that urgency and frequency because of irritative changes in the urethra and the base of the bladder. Management's pretty straightforward. If there are no contraindications, we want to get this patient on topical estrogen either intravaginal cream or an intravaginal estrogen tablet applied daily, typically for two to three weeks, and then they can go on a maintenance dose. There's also a sustained release estrogen ring called Estring that can be placed every three months by a healthcare provider. And why do we recommend topical estrogen? Why not systemic? because if they take systemic estrogen, it'll also help prevent osteoporosis, et cetera. True, but systemic estrogen is associated with a much higher incidence of adverse effects. So if the primary issue is atrophic urethritis, it's much safer to treat topically and just as effective. Okay, so moving on to O. O stands for obstruction, and in this case, the obstruction is created by retained stool. Many of our patients are chronically constipated. They may or may not be aware of this, but this slide shows very clearly the anatomic relationships between the rectum and the sigmoid and then the bladder and the urethra. <clears throat> so in the female, of course, the vagina is in between the bladder and the urethra and the rectosigmoid, but the vagina is essentially a potential space. So even though it looks on the slide like there's all this separation between the rectosigmoid and the bladder and the urethra, in reality, no, they're sitting right next to each other. So what happens if the rectosigmoid is chronically full of stool? Well, several things can happen. First of all, a chronically full rectosigmoid creates pressure against the urethra that causes partial outlet obstruction and can contribute to incomplete bladder empty. Also, if you have any degree of urethral obstruction, it makes the bladder very irritable because the bladder's like, what is in my way? Why can't I get this urine out of here? And it just becomes much more twitchy. It's like ticked off. So you can get 
incomplete emptying, urgency, and frequency. In addition, if the rectosigmoid is chronically full, it interferes with the bladder's ability to stretch and store. So a good way to look at this is the rectosigmoid and the bladder are next door neighbors and they reside within a bony pelvis. The bony pelvis does not expand. So if the rectosigmoid is taking up all the room, the bladder has very little space to stretch and store. For women who have been pregnant, I tell them it's like when that baby was sitting on your bladder. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, they remember that. I had to go to the bathroom. It felt like every 20 minutes. Well, now it's not a baby. Now it's poop, but it's having the same effect. So we're always assessing for any evidence of retained stool in the colon and specifically in the rectosigmoid. When we go through the next class on assessment, we're going to talk about the importance of an abdominal exam and percussion along the length of the colon and possibly a rectal exam to assess for this issue. Chronic constipation, retained stool can contribute to overactive bladder because it makes the bladder twitchy. If you have severe distension, it can literally obstruct the bladder outlet. It can result in retention. Not commonly, but it definitely does happen. So what are we gonna do? We'll talk about this in more detail, but it comes down to two things. We're gonna do a colony clean out with laxatives and enemas to eliminate all retained stool. And then we're gonna get that patient on a bowel program. We're going to assure adequate intake of fiber and fluid so that we maintain normal bowel function, we prevent retained stool. Okay, so now we're to I, and I stands for infection. Now you know probably all of you at some point in time have had a urinary tract infection, and so you probably remember how it felt and how it affected bladder function. Specifically, you probably remember that you had urinary frequency and urgency, so your bladder didn't hold as much, and you didn't have as much response time. In addition, you probably had pain with urination. So let's talk about how that happens. How is it that infection contributes to bladder control issues? Well, you can think if you have an infection involving the bladder, and you look at the slide here, and you see all the little bacteria that have migrated up, and now you've got inflammation involving the urothelium. And remember, the urothelium is the lining of the bladder. When you have inflammation of the urothelium, you get increased signaling from the urothelium to the cortex. The bladder's full, the bladder's full, the bladder's full. You've got to empty the bladder. It's like a nonstop message. And what you perceive, what you think is, my bladder's full, I have to go right now. And then you go and you void just a little bit. But the urothelium, which is so inflamed, acts as if the bladder's completely full. Now, for you, if you have a urinary tract infection, because you have totally normal cognitive function, I hope, and normal mobility, it's gonna cause urgency and frequency. It will not cause incontinence. But what about an older individual? What about an older female who maybe has to use a walker to get to the bathroom? And it takes a little while to get out of the chair because she has arthritis. Then a urinary tract infection can push her over the line 
into incontinence. So we're always assessing our patients when they come in with bladder control issues. Are there any indicators of a urinary tract infection? We're going to do a urinalysis and we're going to ask about signs and symptoms. We're looking for frequency, urgency, and dysuria. That's one complex of symptoms. We're looking for fever and chills. That's number two. We're looking for any recent changes in cognitive or functional status in the elderly. That's number three. We're assessing for suprapubic or flank tenderness. That's number four. And we're looking for changes in the characteristics of the urine. Is it cloudy? Is it malodorous? And do we have an abnormal urinalysis? So we've already talked about the fact that urinary tract infection can be a contributing factor to overactive bladder. It can be a contributing factor to functional incontinence. And we're going to come back to both of those phenomena, to overactive bladder and to functional incontinence. Management, very straightforward. We're going to treat symptomatic infection with antibiotics. But you'll hear this over and over. If they have an abnormal urinalysis but no signs and symptoms, they're not complaining of frequency, urgency, and dysuria, there's no change in functional status, there's no suprapubic tenderness or flank pain, no fever or chills, do not treat. Never ever treat asymptomatic bacteriuria. Now officially I stands for irritant. I mean officially I stands for infection, but we also look at irritants under the eye because the data tells us that for some individuals there are certain dietary substances that can increase bladder irritability that can contribute to urgency and frequency and possibly to leakage. So that's what irritants are. They're substances that have been shown to contribute to bladder irritability and overactivity in some individuals, not all. Why? Well, we think, although we don't know for sure, but we think that in a susceptible individual, intake of one of these substances causes increased urothelial signaling to the bladder. So some of you might have noticed that if you drink Diet Coke or if you're drinking a lot of coffee, if you're taking in a lot of caffeine, you might have noticed that you have increased urgency and frequency as opposed to periods of time when you're drinking primarily water and water-based fluids. So this is not across the board, but it affects enough individuals that you always want to screen for it. You always want to talk to the individual about this. Now look at the second bullet point. The primary irritants, according to the data, are caffeine and nicotine. But there are other products that act as irritants for some individuals. These include aspartame. So some people are very sensitive to artificial sweeteners. Some people are very sensitive to citrus beverages, to carbonated beverages, and even to topical agents like bubble bath. That's more likely to affect a child than an adult, but it could also affect an adult. So we always talk to our patients who are complaining of frequency and urgency. We talk to them about what kinds of fluids they drink. And we ask them, would you be willing to do a short one to two week trial 
to see if reducing your intake of these substances makes a difference in your symptom complex. Does it reduce frequency? Does it reduce urgency? If so, you can decide what to do with that information. So now we're to L, and L stands for limited mobility. And obviously, anyone who has limited mobility is going to need extra time to get to the bathroom. So if you have normal bladder function, this isn't really such an issue. But think about times when you've had intense urgency. How important was it for you to be able to get to the bathroom pretty quickly? It's pretty important. So if you have intense urgency, but it takes you 10 minutes to get to the bathroom and to prepare to void, you can see that that could definitely contribute to leakage episodes. So we're always assessing our patients. How easy is it for them to get up from the chair and walk down the hall? Do they need a walker? Do they need a cane? Are they holding on to the furniture? And might they do better if they had a walker or a cane? How much time does it require for them to get ready to void? So sometimes you'll see people who come in and they're having a lot of problems with urgency and frequency and leakage, but they're, they're still wearing belts and snaps and zippers because they've always worn that kind of clothing. But a simple suggestion, until we get your bladder under control, you might find it a lot easier if you had pull-up pants because you can toilet faster. So bottom line, limited mobility can contribute to leakage in a patient who's already on the edge in terms of bladder control. If you have severe immobility, it can actually cause incontinence. What if you cannot get up by yourself? You're totally dependent on the nursing staff or on your caregiver, and the caregiver doesn't hear you, or you call for the nursing staff and they tell you somebody will be there as soon as possible, but no one comes for 15 minutes. By that time, you've probably had an incontinent episode not because you didn't know you had to go, not because you don't have basic bladder control, but because you're dependent on others to get to the bathroom in a timely manner. So limited mobility can contribute to incontinence. Severe immobility can cause incontinence. And I have to say, I've even heard people tell patients, I've heard patients call out to the nurse's station, I bet you've heard this too, I have to go to the bathroom. And I've heard nurses say, go in your diaper. We can't get there right now, go in your diaper. So what are we doing? We're actually causing incontinence in our patients and making it normal. We don't wanna do that. So we've already talked about management. You can do everything you can to make it easier. Can I bring you a bedside commode? Can I get you a urinal? Can I get you an assistive device? Might you need a PT or an OT consult? How can I help you modify your clothing? And again, we'll come back to these issues and talk about them again when we get into primary management. So let's talk about the first E in toileted. The first E is for emotional issues, and it's almost always depression. We have many, many people struggling with depression. And the interaction between incontinence and depression is relatively complex. So first of all, if you're severely depressed and you can barely get out of bed, 
you just might lack the motivation to get up and go every time your bladder gives you the message. But you also need to think about the fact that the neurotransmitters that are depleted in depression are the very same neurotransmitters that play a role in sphincter function. So if you have major depletion of those neurotransmitters, in addition to depression, you might have sphincter dysfunction. So there might be a physiologic cause that's affecting both mood and continence. So there's many factors that can contribute to incontinence in the patient who is depressed, but the reverse can also happen. Incontinence can itself cause depression. And you have probably seen this. I have definitely seen this. I have also seen individuals who literally were placed in nursing homes because of bladder control issues where the family's like, we can't manage this anymore. You know, she's wetting the furniture, she's wetting the floors, the laundry's nonstop, I can't handle it. We're putting her in a nursing home. And that can definitely trigger depression. So it may be that depression is causing the incontinence. It may be that low levels of critical neurotransmitters are contributing both to the depression and to sphincter dysfunction. Or it may be that the incontinence is causing the depression. Bottom line, we should always be alert to signs of depression. We should always be talking to our patients about how is this problem affecting you? How's it affecting your lifestyle? How's it affecting your activities? How's it affecting how you feel about yourself? Are you depressed? Are you feeling sad? And if we have a patient who's exhibiting signs of clinical depression, we definitely want to refer them for workup and for management. The second T in toileted stands for therapeutic medications. And look at all the medications our patients take. <clears throat> Most of our elderly patients are on multiple, multiple medications every day. The vast majority are on more than 10. And a large percentage are on more than 20. And many of the drugs that our elderly patients take every day have side effects that include bladder dysfunction and incontinence. So the way I want to look at it, I want to actually separate this into two categories because it's so overwhelming to try to screen every medication a patient's taking for any impact on either bladder control or on retention. So I want you to think of it as there's a group of medications that can contribute to incontinence, to loss of bladder control, to leakage. That includes diuretics, alcohol, because of increased urine production that can overwhelm the sphincter mechanism. It includes sedatives and hypnotics that might interfere with my ability to wake to the sensation of a full bladder and to get to the bathroom in time. It includes alpha-adrenergic antagonists that can be used as antihypertensives, but can also open up the bladder neck and increase the risk of leakage. And it includes ACE inhibitors, another very common antihypertensive that can cause a dry cough that contributes to stress incontinence. On the other side of the fence, you have groups of drugs that can contribute to avoiding dysfunction and to retention. Anything that has an anticholinergic effect because what do anticholinergics do? They relax the bladder wall. 
calcium channel blockers because calcium contributes to contractility. So if you block calcium, you contribute to underactivity of the detrusor muscle. An adrenergic agonist like pseudoephedrine and duloxetine because they tighten the bladder neck and make it harder to push urine out. So medications can contribute to overactive bladder and urge incontinence. They can contribute to stress incontinence and they can contribute to retention. And again, you're gonna hear all of this again. So what can we do about it? Those medics, their patient is on those medications for a reason. Those medications may be critical to their overall health. But first of all, we want to collaborate with the pharmacist to identify any medications that could be causing a problem. Then we want to talk to the primary care provider, to the prescribing clinician to say, is this a drug that could be modified? Could we substitute another drug that did not have the same side effect? Or does the patient have to remain on this drug? And specifically for patients on diuretics, we can consider the best time for the patient to take the medication to minimize adverse effects. We'll come back to this, but I'll just stick it in your brain at this point, hopefully, that late afternoon, mid to late afternoon is usually the best time to take a diuretic. The second E in toileted stands for endocrine disorders. By far the most important is poorly controlled diabetes. And you already know, patients who have poorly controlled diabetes, that hyperglycemia causes intense thirst. So now they're drinking large volumes of water and water-based fluids. All those fluids are gonna get processed rapidly through the kidneys, dumped into the bladder, and that sudden deposit of urine into, a, into the bladder can push somebody over the edge into incontinence if they're borderline. So if somebody has normal bladder control, they're going to, they're going to experience urgency and frequency. But if someone's borderline in terms of bladder control, they're going to report increased urgency, increased frequency, and increased episodes of leakage. Same thing happens with diabetes insipidus, but it's much less common, so we don't focus on that nearly as much. Occasionally, you'll pay, have a patient with hypercalcemia. Calcium's important in muscle contractility. So if you drive calcium levels up, you make the detrusor muscle overactive, more contractile. So you take it all together, hyperglycemia, diabetes insipidus, hypercalcemia can all contribute to an overactive bladder where you have increased urgency, increased frequency, and episodes of leakage. And of course, the management's very straightforward. You're going to always screen for any kind of endocrine disorders. You're going to work with the patient and the provider to assure optimal control of any of these conditions. And you're gonna educate the patient as to the role that poorly controlled diabetes can play in bladder dysfunction. So now we're to the last thing in reversible factors, D. D stands for delirium, and you know that delirium, by definition, is a reversible alteration in mental status. And obviously, if I'm confused, if I'm struggling to remember where I am, where the bathroom is, 
who these people in my room are, even though they're family members, then my cortex is not working properly. It is not processing information correctly. It's not processing signals correctly. It's not making appropriate decisions. So delirium compromises my ability to recognize bladder filling and to respond appropriately. What causes it? Many things. In the elderly, infection is one of the most common causes of delirium. So you'll hear people say, you know, mom was okay last week and she wasn't leaking and she was with it. And now this week, I don't know what's going on, but it's like she can't remember who I am. She can't remember where the bathroom is. She keeps wetting herself. Um, I don't know what to do. So infection's the most common. Electrolyte imbalance can contribute. New medications or a change in medication dosage can also contribute. A lot of confusion as to the difference between dementia and delirium and can they coexist. So remember that dementia is an irreversible alteration in mental status, like Alzheimer's. Delirium is reversible. If I have Alzheimer's at baseline, can I have a superimposed delirium? If I get a urinary tract infection, could my cognitive function acutely deteriorate? Yes. Can you bring me back to baseline? Yes, treat my infection. Look at my meds, correct any electrolyte abnormalities, and you will bring me back to baseline. So delirium is a very important contributing and causative factor for functional incontinence. Again, we'll be discussing functional incontinence in more detail, so don't get too lost in that at this point. So when it comes to delirium, it's all about correcting the underlying etiologic factors. What caused this acute deterioration in cognitive status? Fix that, you'll restore my baseline function. Until then, you might need to use absorptive products to manage my incontinence. Okay, so we've said that a lot of your patients come to you and they either have transient or reversible incontinence, or they have reversible factors that are making their chronic incontinence much worse. So you always start by going through toileted. Screen for every one of those reversible factors, treat them, and then you want to reassess and see, okay, is the incontinence resolved? Is it better? What pattern of incontinence remains? So established or chronic incontinence, as we've said, is by definition incontinence that persists after all reversible factors have been corrected. And according to the books, incontinence that persists for more than six months altogether. Usually by the time your patient comes to you, it's been more than six months because people keep hoping it will get better. They keep trying things on their own. So I have never been in a situation where I thought I needed to delay treatment until the patient met that six-month um, guideline. So if I have a patient whose incontinence persists even after reversible factors were corrected, now my challenge is to identify the specific type of incontinence, the specific type of voiding dysfunction. Is it a bladder issue? Is it a sphincter issue? Is it a neurologic issue? And then I can address the causative factors. That's what my management plan is going to do. Now we are going to very quickly go through 
the main types of incontinence and voiding dysfunction. First, I'm just going to define them, and we're, then we're going to look at each one. And we're going to look at each one in terms of what's the issue here? What is this a bladder issue? Is it a sphincter issue? Is it another issue? What's the primary pathology and etiology? And how does the patient present? Then in later classes, we will discuss management in a lot of detail. So here's your very quick overview where we're just looking at definitions, and a lot of these terms will be familiar to you, either from nursing school or from commercials. So stress incontinence, most of us heard about this in nursing school. We know that stress incontinence is more common in women. It's a sphincter issue, so it is leakage caused by a weak sphincter, it occurs with activity. Some people call this activity-associated incontinence. Urge incontinence, overactive bladder, you've probably heard about on television from commercials. So this is a bladder issue. It's leakage associated with sudden, intense urgency and it's caused either by abnormal bladder sensitivity so that the bladder senses fullness and relays signals about bladder filling at low volumes. Or it could be caused by abnormal bladder contractility. So it could either be a urothelial issue where it's a sensing and signaling problem or it could be a muscle issue where it's a contractility problem. Now there's a lot of terms associated with urge incontinence. Overactive bladder is a term that was coined by the pharmacologic industry and it's actually been very helpful because it moves away from the term incontinence, which is hard for people to say I have a problem with incontinence it's much easier for them to say, I think I have that problem they're talking about on TV, that overactive bladder thing. Because I'm just like that woman, I'm always running to the bathroom. And I'm always afraid I'm not gonna make it. And sometimes I don't. So overactive bladder, urge incontinence, you'll hear those terms sometimes used interchangeably. Overactive bladder refers to the underlying issue, the bladder's contracting inappropriately. Urge incontinence is leakage associated with a sudden intense urge to void. You might also hear this referred to as urgency frequency syndrome. Mixed urinary incontinence is a combination of stress and urge. So these patients will tell you, I don't know, sometimes I leak because I'm in the gym, sometimes I leak because I cough or laugh or sneeze, but other times I'm just trying to get to the bathroom and I don't make it in time. That's combination. Functional incontinence refers to leakage due to factors outside the urinary tract. So if you have functional incontinence, your bladder is probably working normally. Your sphincter is probably working normally. There's something else that is causing you to have episodes of incontinence. Either you do have altered mental status, you have issues with delirium or dementia, so that you don't process feedback from your bladder correctly and you don't respond appropriately, or maybe you have severe immobility and you can't get from here to there in a timely manner. Extraurethral incontinence we'll spend very little time talking about because it's a totally different kind of problem. 
With extraurethral incontinence, you have an abnormal opening that bypasses the sphincter. Most commonly, it's a vesicovaginal fistula in women, so urine is transported from the kidneys to the bladder to the vagina, and then it's just dripping out. And obviously, it's not going to respond to any of our continence therapies because it's an anatomic defect. In some children, you might have an ectopic ureter so that the ureter does not implant into the base of the bladder, but instead is connected to the urethra itself, and it bypasses the sphincter. So a totally different kind of issue. We'll talk about it very briefly. The last two things, actually there's three more, um, voiding dysfunction, neurogenic, and then we'll talk about enuresis. Stress incontinence, urge incontinence, functional incontinence, those are all issues with the storage phase, uh, the voiding cycle. So that means you leak when you should be storing. Voiding dysfunction, retention, is a problem with the emptying phase of the cycle. So here you have a problem getting urine out. You have incomplete bladder emptying, either because the detrusor muscle is weak or because there's something in the way, there's some kind of outlet obstruction. Neurogenic bladder is a very complex lower urinary tract dysfunction. It's caused by some kind of neurologic lesion that impairs neurologic function of the bladder and the sphincter. Typically, these are patients who have sustained spinal cord injuries. It might be a child born with spina bifida. It might be a patient with MS affecting the spinal cord or the brain. Across the board, most of these patients report reduced sensory awareness of bladder filling, definitely report reduced ability to control bladder emptying. Some of them have problems with coordination between bladder contractions and sphincter relaxation, a phenomenon known as bladder sphincter dyssynergia. That's the most complex condition we'll talk about. Fortunately, it's also the least common. And then finally, nocturnal enuresis. This is persistent bedwetting in children who are past the age at which nighttime control is typically established. The primary causative factors, and we'll talk about these in more detail, either very deep sleep, the child does not wake to the sensation of a full bladder, and or abnormally low levels of ADH at night. So normally, we produce a lot of antidiuretic hormone at night that concentrates our urine, reduces urine volume, lets us sleep through the night. But in children with enuresis, they typically have very low volumes of ADH, and so they void large volumes. If you have a combination of deep sleep and overproduction of urine at night, that kid's kind of set up to have problems. Okay, so in the very last section of what you're probably thinking is an interminably long class, we're gonna take each type of chronic incontinence and we're gonna look at it in a little bit more detail in terms of what's the basic problem, what are the causative factors, and what's the clinical presentation. So let's look first at stress incontinence, a very common type of continence among women 
and also among men who have required prostate surgery. So you want to think of stress incontinence as activity-associated leakage. This is leakage of urine associated with periods of increased abdominal pressure. Basically what happens when you cough, when you laugh, when you sneeze, when you lift, you get increased levels of abdominal pressure because you're using your muscles. So when those abdominal muscles contract, they push against the bladder and they increase bladder pressure. If your sphincter is not strong, that increase in bladder pressure will drive urine through the urethra and you'll get small amounts of leakage. When you talk to women or men who have stress incontinence, if you ask them, did you have an urge to urinate, they'll say, no, I didn't have to go at all. In fact, I knew I was going into gym class, so the last thing I did before I went into the class was go to the bathroom and then I got into class and as soon as we started doing aerobics, I had wet pants. So you see it is activity associated, it's not urge associated, has nothing to do with bladder contractions. The bladder is not contracting. Some other activity is causing abdominal muscle contraction that pushes against the bladder and if you have a weak sphincter, is driving urine through the urethra. So the basic pathology, it's a sphincter problem. Sphincter dysfunction, inadequate urethral resistance. The only time they leak is when they're coughing, laughing, sneezing, lifting. Now there's two major causative factors for stress incontinence. The first is pelvic muscle weakness. It's also known as pelvic floor relaxation. But what we're really talking about is weak sphincter muscles and weak pelvic floor muscles because those are the muscles you depend on to maintain a closed lumen to keep urine in the bladder and out of the urethra. But if those muscles are weak, they're unable to maintain urethral closure when bladder pressure goes up. If the pelvic floor muscles are weak, they allow the urethra to drop out of position. That is a term or a phenomenon known as urethral hypermobility. The urethra really shouldn't be mobile at all. It should stay in position. Whether I cough, laugh, sneeze, lift, do jumping jacks, or jog, nothing should change. My urethra should stay in position so that my sphincter functions normally. But if I had that hammock-style pelvic floor, if my pelvic floor muscles are all stretched out, if my sphincter muscles are weak, then anything that causes downward pressure on the bladder pushes the sphincter out of position. Once you push the sphincter out of position, it doesn't work well because it's having to reach up and try to close instead of doing this. So pelvic floor weakness, pelvic floor relaxation, urethral hypermobility. Those are terms that you will hear that indicate that there's inadequate support for the bladder and for the sphincter. To recap, normal function. My bladder and my sphincter are supported in position. I cough, I laugh, I sneeze. 
The pelvic floor provides support, so even if there's an initial downward push, the pelvic floor pushes back, maintains the bladder and sphincter in position, the sphincter contracts to maintain urethral closure. If I have a weak pelvic floor, I cough, I laugh, or I sneeze, that downward pressure pushes the bladder and the sphincter out of position. My trampoline has turned into a hammock, so it can't push back. The sphincter is very compromised. It's working from a stressed position, and it's unable to maintain closure. Now, the other major problem that can occur is you can have a sphincter that is damaged or denervated, and that's a very different problem. If I have weak muscles, I can rehab those muscles. But I, if I have damaged or denervated muscles, I may not be able to rehab those muscles. So here's how I think about it. If I've been kind of a couch potato all winter, sitting on the couch, eating my snacks, watching TV, and now it's spring and I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to go to the beach in a month. I don't look like beach material. I better get with the program. I better be doing my crunches. I better getting, be getting my abdominal muscles in shape. I can do that because my muscles are just weak. But what if I had a spinal cord injury and my legs are paralyzed? Can I rehab those muscles just through repetitive exercise? No, because I can't even do the exercises. So patients who have damaged or denervated sphincters have a much different problem than patients who just have weak muscles. If I have a sphincter that's damaged or denervated, it takes very little downward push to cause leakage. I may just stand and leak. That's how little urethral resistance I may have. So what would cause this? Well, sometimes pelvic trauma that interrupts some of the nerve pathways. If you've had radical pelvic surgery, you could have damage to the nerves that innervate the sphincter. Men who have had radical prostatectomy may have nerve damage and may have some direct damage to the sphincter muscle itself because it's sitting right next to the prostate gland. Spinal cord injured individuals there is no innervation to their sphincter muscles. Same thing in children with spina bifida and myelomeningocele. And finally, if you have patients, and I know we all have these patients, who have had very long-term use of an indwelling catheter, so they've been using a Foley catheter for years, then very likely there is irreversible damage to the bladder neck and the urethra in which muscle fibers have been replaced with collagen. And then the end result, and you see it on this slide, is you go from a normal urethra to a denervated and damaged urethra that acts like a rigid pipe. So it's unable to contract and to maintain closure. And these patients require very different management. So risk factors for stress incontinence um, aging in and of itself because of changes in the pelvic floor, because of loss of estrogen, because of overall weakness of the sphincter muscles unless we're doing our exercises. 
traumatic vaginal deliveries because you can get stretch injuries to the pudendal nerve and the pudendal nerve controls sphincter function. Hysterectomy can cause nerve damage that affects bladder and sphincter function, specifically sphincter function. Chronic constipation, chronic straining at stool can weaken the pelvic floor. We've talked about repeated or long-term urethral instrumentation can destroy the muscular components of the urethra and render the sphincter totally incompetent. And then pelvic trauma, radical prostatectomy, or a neurologic lesion can cause denervation of the sphincter. What do we see in our patients? And we'll come back to this, but I just want to briefly um, touch on this. They will always be talking about leakage with activity. When you ask them, do you have an urge to void, they will say no. And typically there are no issues with nighttime leakage, no nocturia. Assessment and management, we're gonna get into this in a later class. Obviously, when we're doing assessment of an individual who presents with the classic signs and symptoms of stress incontinence, our big focus in our assessment is assessing pelvic muscle strength and looking for any evidence of sphincter damage. Management is going to be focused on either strengthening weak muscles or compensating for damaged or denervated muscles. The second very common type of incontinence is urge urinary incontinence. Urge urinary incontinence is caused by overactive bladder. So we're going to revisit these definitions one more time. Overactive bladder is urgency, frequency, and nocturia in the absence of any definable pathology. There is no urinary tract infection. There is no other definable pathology. Overactive bladder can be further classified as wet or dry, and that's pretty easy to figure out. So wet overactive bladder is urgency and frequency associated with leakage. Dry is urgency and frequency, but no leakage. Not surprisingly, wet OAB is much more common in women, and dry OAB is much more common in men. Urge incontinence, is basically wet OAB. It's leakage associated with that urgency frequency syndrome. What's causing it? So we know that the basic problem is that the bladder's contracting inappropriately at low volumes. So you look at a normal bladder, you look at an overactive bladder. So a normal bladder fills almost to capacity before you feel intense urge to void. Look at that overactive bladder. Small volumes of urine can create intense urgency to void. So why? Well, when you see a topic that begins theories, theories regarding etiology, what does it tell you? We don't really know. We do know that some patients with the syndrome of overactive bladder and urge incontinence have some kind of cerebrocortical process that is contributing to their inability to delay voiding. So they've lost their ability to control the bladder normally. We see that a lot in our stroke patients. We see it in our Parkinson's patients. We see it in our MS patients. 
but the vast majority of patients with overactive bladder and urge incontinence do not have a cerebrocortical lesion. So what else would do it? Well, we mentioned briefly that it could be the lining of the bladder. There could be something going on there so that you get abnormal signaling. So that the urethelium is sending messages to the cortex that says the bladder's full, the bladder's full, even though you're at 20% capacity. So maybe it's sensory dysfunction. Or maybe it's something going on at the level of the detrusor itself. So in some of the studies they've done, when they've looked at the aging bladder and they've looked at differences in muscle function from a bladder from someone who's 75 and having problems with urgency and frequency and someone who's 45 with no issues, they find that there are changes in muscle function so that instead of each fiber acting alone, there's abnormal transmission of impulses so that you might get a full contraction and bladder emptying, whereas 30 years ago, all you got was a little twitch that sent a message to the brain about bladder filling. So maybe it's a problem here with the cortex. Maybe it's a problem at the level of the urethelium. Maybe it's a problem with detrusor contractility. We have a lot left to learn about overactive bladder. But we do know how to recognize it, and we know a fair amount about how to treat it. So the clinical presentation is classic. Look at the three things that are in bold. If all three of those signs and symptoms coexist, almost always it means the patient has overactive bladder urge incontinence. So urgency. Now we have all had urgency. What's the difference in this urgency? What makes it pathologic? For most of us, when we have urgency, we're like, well, I have got to stop what I'm doing and go to the bathroom, because if I don't, I'm going to have another problem. But we also have the sense that if we do stop what we're doing, we can get to the bathroom. Also, normal urgency is a gradual building. So it's like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. I don't have time right now, I'll go in a minute. I really need to go to the bathroom. Well, let me just do this one other thing. Wow, I'm getting really, really full. I can't put it off any longer. So it's that building process. With abnormal pathologic urgency, I'm sitting here, I'm doing whatever, I'm taking care of a patient, I'm giving medications, I'm hanging an IV, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm about to wet my pants, I have got to get to the bathroom. So it's this sudden onset of intense urgency where you feel, if I don't get to the bathroom right now, I will leak. Different than normal urgency. Frequency. So how do you define abnormal urinary frequency? There's two ways to look at it. <clears throat> One way is how many times do you void in 24 hours? So more than eight voids in 24 hours is considered abnormal frequency. Well, if I asked you, how many times did you void yesterday? I really hope you cannot tell me because if you can tell me, you're probably paying a little bit too much attention to your bladder. Most of us are like, I don't know, uh, four, five, six, I don't know. 
So most people can't tell you without looking at a bladder chart. So that's why we usually ask people about voiding interval instead. And most adults can go at least two hours between voids unless they're taking in abnormal amounts of fluid. So if I say to you instead, on average, how long can you go between trips to the bathroom? How often do you have to urinate? Most people can say, oh, you know what, usually about three hours. If people are struggling with that, you can say to them, can you sit through a movie? Can you sit through a TV program? But we're looking for, on average, most adults can go at least two hours. Because the bladder is responding abnormally to low volumes, most of the time you'll hear patients say something like, I feel like I'm about to die to go. I rush to the bathroom, I get there, and I just pee a little bit. What is that about? That is the bladder responding inappropriately to low volume. So most people with overactive bladder and urge incontinence have urgency, frequency, low voided volumes, and of course they have nocturia because their bladder can't hold much, so it's going to get them up during the night. Those are the classics. Now, the other signs and symptoms you'll hear from some people and maybe not from others. Key in the lock syndrome, what is that? That's I'm driving home and I kind of know I have to go, but it's like I don't have intense urgency. I'm just thinking, yeah, as soon as I get home, I'm going to go to the bathroom. So I get home, park my car, get out of the car, walk up to the door, and as I put the key in the lock, I have sudden intense urgency. And it's like the cortex is saying, okay, we're home. And you're like, I'm not in the bathroom yet. So sudden intense urgency when you put the key in the lock, very commonly reported um, symptom. The most problematic symptom for many, many individuals with urge incontinence is leakage during intercourse. That's what brings people into treatment, is what makes people stop having sex and say, I can't live like this, something has to happen. Toilet mapping, that's where you know where all the toilets are. You know where the toilets are where you work. If you know where you can stop on the way to work. You're constantly looking, where's the bathroom, where's the bathroom, where's the bathroom, because you never know when you're gonna have that sudden urgency. And then I just wanna mention something called DHIC. It stands for detrusor hyperactivity with impaired contractility. We sometimes see this in the elderly. So they come in and they, re, they come to clinic, they're complaining of frequency, urgency, just voiding little bits, leaking on the way to the bathroom. But then when we do the workup, we find that they're actually in some degree of retention. And it's because their bladder is abnormally twitchy, but it doesn't contract effectively to empty. So patients with DHIC have combination storage problems and emptying problems. We always focus on emptying first. So in assessing and treating the individual with urge incontinence, again, we'll come back to this in later classes. History is critical because what are the major clues? Frequency, urgency, nocturia. Focus physical exam, you're always gonna do a urinalysis because you need to rule out other reasons for frequency urgency. 
You need to rule out infection. You need to rule out glucosuria. And of course, we always screen for hematuria. You will see in just a few minutes that the clinical presentation for overactive bladder and the clinical presentation for retention overlap considerably. So anytime someone comes in with complaints of frequency and urgency and nocturia and possibly leakage, you're gonna ask them, do you always feel as if you empty? Which of these Euroflow patterns looks most like you? And if you have any concerns at all about possible retention, you're gonna do a post-void residual check. Management's all focused on calming the bladder down, so eliminating irritants, eliminating any infection, eliminating atrophic urethritis, then we're gonna teach the patient strategies to improve their voluntary control avoiding. They may or may not need medications. They may or may not need absorbent products. Combined stress urge is exactly what it says. You've got both a problem with the bladder and a problem with the sphincter. Some leakage episodes are related to urgency. Some leakage episodes are related to activity. So you're gonna treat both. We'll come back to that. The third most common type of incontinence is functional incontinence. By definition, functional incontinence is caused by factors outside the urinary tract. The bladder and the sphincter are behaving relatively well. That function is pretty much normal. Two major reasons for functional incontinence. Why would you have leakage if your bladder can stretch and store and your sphincter is able to maintain closure. One is cognitive impairment. Remember that normally the cortex is in control. The cortex decides when and where we void. But what if you have cortical dysfunction? What if you have dementia? What if you have delirium? Then you're unable to process the messages going to the cortex and you're able, unable to respond appropriately. So you lose voluntary control, and the bladder just does its own thing. It empties at capacity. Fills, empties, fills, empties. The other major um, causative factor is severe immobility or frailty. I can't get there on my own. My caregiver's not always available. The nursing staff is not always available. I end up being incontinent. Clinically, people with functional incontinence usually have moderate to large volume leakage at pretty regular intervals. If my issue is cognitive impairment, I'm probably not even aware of the need to void. I might not be aware of my leakage episodes. If the issue is immobility and frailty, yes, I know, I just can't do anything about it. And if I have a patient who has coexisting overactive bladder, they'll just have more frequent lower volume incontinent episodes. So again, we're gonna come back to assessment and treatment in future classes, but when you're doing your assessment, you're always assessing cognitive function and you're always assessing mobility. Treatment is, of course, gonna to be totally dependent on the etiologic factors. If it's a mobility issue, all of my interventions are focused on improving mobility. 
If you have a problem with cognitive function, I'll be trying to think, could you benefit from a toileting program? Do you need containment products? What's going to work for you and your caregiver? So the types we've talked about so far, stress incontinence, urge incontinence, functional incontinence, those are all issues related to the storage side of the voiding cycle. These are people who are leaking urine when they should be storing. In contrast, voiding dysfunction, also known as retention, is a problem with the emptying side. Now you have someone who can't get the urine out. So definition is the inability to empty the bladder effectively. You've taken care of many patients in retention in your life as a nurse, so you know that when people are in retention, they will also have frequency and urgency and they'll avoid little bitty amounts. They might have issues with leakage because essentially the bladder's always full. They're never emptying the bladder. So they're constantly going to the bathroom, forcing a little bit of urine out, possibly leaking. A lot of patients who are in retention have a secondary urge pattern incontinence due in part to rapid refilling, the bladder's always full, but also remember if there's any kind of outflow obstruction, it really ticks the bladder off, it makes it really irritable because it's trying to push urine through the outlet and it can't get it there, can't get past whatever's in the way. Now. Retention can be acute or chronic. Most of our patients have chronic retention, but we need to be aware of acute urinary retention, which is sudden inability to pass any urine. That is going to be acutely painful in any individual with intact sensation. You've probably had these people postoperatively. They are in so much pain from their over-distended bladder that when you come at them with a catheter, they're happy to see you. In general, when you have people with, say, chronic retention, they're not in discomfort. You come at them with a catheter and they're like, no. But if I'm in acute retention, I'm in a lot of pain, and that catheter looks pretty wonderful to me. What causes acute retention? Well, most of the time, there's a triggering event. They, this is known as precipitated acute urinary retention. So usually it's a patient who's post-op or it's a patient who has sudden um, onset of constipation that's furthering the outlet obstruction. Or sometimes it's medication. So maybe you've got a male who has an enlarged prostate and he goes to the drugstore and he picks up some Sudafed for his head cold and he doesn't know that Sudafed is going to cause further tightening of the urethral outlet. He doesn't know that he's about to precipitate acute urinary retention. So it can be medications, it can be constipation, it can be surgery. Sometimes we don't know what precipitated it, but most of the time we do. More commonly, you and I are dealing with patients in chronic retention. So these are patients who their bladder empties a little bit, empties a little bit, empties a little bit, but never empties completely. Most of them have post-void residual volumes higher than 300 milliliters. In most cases, chronic retention is non-painful. 
even if they have a liter of, the, of urine in their bladder. If it's a chronic condition, it's typically non-painful because the bladder is stretched a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Very different from acute urinary retention where you have a normal bladder that is suddenly distended very abnormally and you have massive stretch on the muscle fibers, that causes major pain. But very gradual distension, no. It's kind of like if you took a non-pregnant woman and tried to put a nine-month fetus, no, she wouldn't be able to tolerate that. The uterus would not stretch to that. The abdominal cavity would not accommodate. But over nine months, it does. So gradual stretch is well-tolerated and non-painful. Sudden, acute stretch, acutely painful. Now, when you have a patient in chronic retention, it's important to determine what is causing the retention. Is it a weak bladder muscle or is it outlet obstruction? It's important to determine whether they have high pressure chronic retention or low pressure chronic retention. What does that even mean? If I have high pressure chronic retention, I have a detrusor muscle that works and is trying to force urine out and it is responding to outlet obstruction with an exaggerated contractile force. That exaggerated contractile force drives up the pressure in the bladder that interferes with urine delivery from the kidneys. So high pressure chronic retention is usually caused by bladder outlet obstruction and is potentially hostile to the kidneys. So it's critical to treat that in a timely fashion. So we were just talking about the primary etiologic factors for urinary retention. Why would you have trouble getting urine out? And it's one of two things. Either there's bladder outlet obstruction, which in the literature is always abbreviated as BOO. So that's obstruction at the bladder outlet, usually because of enlarged prostate gland like you see on top. Sometimes it's because of cystocele or pelvic organ prolapse in women. Sometimes it's because of a neurologic process that causes bladder sphincter dyssynergia. So the bladder's contracting and trying to empty. The sphincter's contracting too and preventing urine flow. The other big reason for retention is you have a problem at the level of the detrusor. So what is the detrusor supposed to do? It's supposed to stretch and store, contract and empty. But what if you lose contractility? What if the detrusor becomes very weak? And so instead of contracting forcefully, it just gives you this weak squeeze. It maybe forces out 20% of the urine, leaves 80% behind. That unfortunately is a pretty common scenario, especially in patients who have had longstanding diabetes that's poorly controlled. So they can get something called diabetic cystopathy, bladder muscle that does not work. Multiple sclerosis can cause this, a sacral spinal cord injury can cause this because you lose innervation to the bladder, and we see some reduction in contractility in people of advanced age. Now you notice they don't define that. I'm pretty interested to know what they consider advanced age. Right now I'm just grateful I can still pee, so. 
Okay, so let's look at clinical presentation um, for urinary retention. Acute typically is in the emergency department or on the post-op floor. Rapid onset, total inability to avoid pain. If it occurs in someone who's home, they will come to the emergency department. And I once went to a very interesting discussion um, by a PA in urology, and he was talking about how important it is when a patient in acute retention comes to the emergency room, how important it is to make sure that they're catheterized in a very timely manner. Because what he was saying is, you need to realize those muscle fibers are being stretched, and you don't want to destroy those muscle fibers, so decompress that bladder as quickly as possible. Chronic urinary retention. I want you to notice the overlap between the clinical presentation for overactive bladder and the clinical presentation for urinary retention. So frequency, you see that in retention, you see it in overactive bladder. Low volume voids, you see that in overactive bladder and in retention. <clears throat> Nocturia, both. But everything else is different. Feelings of incomplete emptying. If you have a patient with intact sensation, they'll usually report feelings of incomplete emptying. They will report a weak or an intermittent stream. When you do your abdominal assessment, you'll see bladder distension as you percuss down. There's almost always suprapubic tenderness. So enough indicators to make you think, I should do a post-void residual, and what do you find? Elevated post-void residual volumes. So my point is, if somebody comes in and says, I think I might be like that lady on TV because I'm running to the bathroom all the time, I'm worried I'm not gonna make it, and sometimes I don't. You never ever assume it's overactive bladder until you rule out retention. There's enough overlap in the clinical presentation that you just always want to have that in the back of your head. How do you manage? Well, again, you're going to do your HMP. You're always going to do a post-void residual if there's any reason at all to suspect retention. And if they are in retention, now you have to determine, is this a bladder outlet issue or is it a detrusor issue? Is it high pressure or low pressure? So most of the time you need to do urodynamics. How do we manage them? Well, we're gonna go into detail in a later class, but obviously if you're in acute retention, you need immediate urgent catheterization. Get the bladder decompressed, keep it decompressed, and then you can take the catheter out and do a voiding trial. If you have chronic urinary retention, it's much more complicated. You have to figure out, is it an outlet issue? If it is, can you fix it? Can you fix that enlarged prostate gland? Can you fix that cystocele or that pelvic organ prolapse? Can you give medications to make that dyssynergic sphincter relax? What if you have a weak detrusor muscle? You can't fix a weak detrusor. You have to compensate by either intermittent catheterization or indwelling catheterization. Extra urethral incontinence, we've already said, is a problem outside the bladder and the sphincter. The problem is the urine is bypassing the sphincter mechanism. So here you see a patient with a vesicovaginal fistula. You could also have an ectopic ureter. They're gonna leak all the time. 
they're not going to respond to therapy and management is going to involve correction of the anatomic defect or use of absorbent and containment products. Again, we'll come back to this because we're going to discuss assessment and management in more detail. Probably the most complex patient we see is the patient with neurogenic bladder. And the word neurogenic tells you a lot. It tells you that the basic problem is loss of normal neural control. So now you have lower urinary tract dysfunction, is caused by a neurologic lesion or disorder, is characterized by loss of voluntary bladder control. But neurogenic bladder is an umbrella term. And the specific presentation, the specific pathology, and the specific management is dependent on the location and the, path and the pathology of the lesion. Is it CNS, cerebrocortical? Is it spinal cord? If it's in the spinal cord, is it above the sacral level where the pudendal nerve comes off and the parasympathetics come off? Or is it right at the sacral level? So we tend to divide neurogenic bladder into three different categories. First is a CNS lesion. Your patient with a CVA, your patient with Parkinson's, your patient who had a traumatic brain injury. What is that going to cause? Well, what does your cortex provide you? Provides you with social continence, the ability to delay voiding. What do they lose? The ability to delay voiding until it's socially appropriate. So these are people who tell you, I know when I have to go, I can't hold it long enough to get there. If you have a suprasacral cord lesion, so this would be a spinal cord injury, or spina bifida or MS lesions affecting the cord above S1, okay? So what happens if you have a cord injury or a cord lesion? Well, you've interrupted the communication highway. So there's no way to get messages from the cortex and the brainstem down to the bladder and sphincter. There's no way to get messages from the bladder and sphincter up to the cortex and the brainstem. So you lose all that communication. That means you have no sensory awareness of bladder filling. I do not know when I have to go. And I have no volitional control. I can't give you a urine specimen and I cannot delay voiding. Now, because the reflex arc at the sacral cord level is still intact, what happens is the bladder fills, that activates stretch receptors in the bladder wall that send a message over to the cord, that activates motor pathways to cause bladder contraction. It's literally a reflex. You know you can have a patient with a cord injury, and if it's a above the level of voluntary control, you can tap the knee and they'll still get that knee jerk. They won't be voluntarily able to extend their leg, but the reflexes are still intact. Same thing here. They've lost the ability to voluntarily control bladder emptying, but there's still a reflex arc so that when the bladder fills, the message goes to the cord, activates pathways to cause bladder contraction. Okay, 
because the parasympathetic reflex arc remains intact. Here's the big problem with suprasacral cord lesions, the sphincter. So we've got the reflex arc to make the bladder empty in response to bladder filling. But what's gonna make the sphincter open? You've lost voluntary control of the sphincter. Automatic control of the sphincter comes from the pons. There's no communication between the pons and the sphincter now, so there's no way to control the sphincter. And what you get is a mixed bag of possible outcomes. So sometimes, in some patients, when the bladder contracts, the sphincter opens and everything's good. Sometimes when the bladder contracts, you get initial resistance from the sphincter and then it relaxes and it's like, okay, go ahead. But sometimes when the bladder contracts, you get strong contraction of the sphincter that causes bladder outlet obstruction. That can be very problematic because you get incomplete emptying, you can get reflux, you can get that high pressure chronic retention, so we always have to assess to see what's going on with the sphincter. Now the other thing in patients with suprasacral cord lesions, if the lesion's above T6 to T8, the individual's at risk for that phenomenon known as autonomic dysreflexia. So remember that the sympathetic pathways come off the cord at the thoracolumbar level. So if you have a lesion above that level, what's going to happen is that noxious stimuli like an overly full bladder, an overly full rectum, an infected pressure injury, any of those noxious stimuli can trigger sympathetic response. And you can get a sympathetic storm that drives the blood pressure up, causes an acute hypertensive crisis critical to recognize it. Usually the patient all of a sudden has a severe headache, pallor, sweating, all of the things that we associate with sympathetic stimulation. So we can give them something to get their blood pressure down and we need to, but we also need to figure out, well, what's the stimulus? Is, is the catheter kinked? Is the bladder full? Is the rectum full? We've got to deal with whatever triggered that dysreflexia. So suprasacral cord lesions, very complex neurologic processes. We'll come back to this and spend more time on it. Sacral cord lesions, these are also known as lower motor neuron lesions. Here you have a cord injury or a cord lesion right at S2 to S4. Now what normally comes off the cord at S2 to S4, all your parasympathetic pathways that cause bladder contraction. That's where your pudendal nerve exits the cord and your pudendal nerve gives you voluntary sphincter control. When you have a patient with a sacral cord lesion, they lose voluntary awareness, they lose sensory awareness of bladder filling. They lose volitional control of voiding because again, there's no communication between the cortex and the brainstem and the bladder and the sphincter. So they lose all those same things that the patient with the suprasacral cord lesion lost. But the other thing is they don't have that reflex arc because the reflex arc involves the sacral pathways. So they have 
absolutely no way to empty the bladder. The bladder's just sitting there in the pelvis with no direction. And so it fills, and then excess urine dribbles out, but the bladder itself is always full. So you've got massive distension, overflow leakage. So they have constant wetness, a lot of issues with skin care, skin protection, increased risk for urinary tract infection because they have persistent stasis. Clinical presentation is obviously gonna differ. Which group do you fall in? Do you have a cerebrocortical lesion? Do you have a suprasacral lesion or a sacral lesion? If I'm a post-CVA patient, a Parkinson's patient, I'm probably going to report frequency, urgency, nocturia, and leakage. The good thing about your CVA patients, they typically improve spontaneously over time. But all of these patients are going to need management. If I have a suprasacral lesion, so these are your quadriplegics and your partial paraplegics, people whose cord injury or cord lesion is above S2 to S4. I'm either gonna have diminished or totally, total absence of sensory awareness. I will not know when I have to void. I will not be able to control voiding voluntarily. I will have a bladder that empties by the reflex arc, but it's gonna empty in response to filling, not in response to anything that I'm thinking. And the big unknown is, what does the sphincter do? If I have a sacral cord lesion, I have all of those other things. I have loss of sensory awareness, loss of voluntary control. I also have loss of the reflex arc, no way to empty the bladder, so I'm just constantly dribbling, 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 massive distension. So obviously, if I have a patient and I'm doing an H&P, I'm gonna be very alert to any kind of neurologic process. If it hasn't already been worked up, I'm going to refer that patient for workup. Most of the time, that patient needs urodynamic studies so I know exactly what's happening. That's particularly important for your patients with spinal lesions. And the management's gonna depend be dependent on, well, where's the lesion and how severe is it? In general, with your cerebrocortical lesions, I'm focused on strategies to improve voluntary control, make that bladder less hyperactive. If I have a cord lesion, most of the time I'm teaching that patient to use intermittent catheterization to empty the bladder at routine intervals and to restore a level of bladder control. And then the last type that we're gonna mention is enuresis, and we've already said what this is, bedwetting that persists past the age at which nighttime control is typically established. You can have primary, that's a child who's never acquired nighttime continence. You can have secondary, that's a child who was continent for a period of time and then they regressed. Why? What causes this? So a lot of children have been punished for enuresis. It's very sad. Um, it's a very common cause of child abuse. 
because many parents believe that their children are acting out and that they're doing it voluntarily. Not true at all. So notice in bold, developmental delay is the currently the most accepted theory. What they think is there's a delay in maturation of some of our neurologic pathways. And there are two things that result. And the first is very deep sleep. So this child does not wake to the sensation of a full bladder. Now probably most of you can think of a time when you are so tired and you were sleeping so soundly and you dreamed that you had to go to the bathroom and in your dream you got up and you're walking over to the bathroom and then at the last minute you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not in the bathroom. If you don't wake up then, you'll wake up in just a minute. So we, most of us can relate to that phenomenon of deep sleep and what you hear parents say is, I make him go to the bathroom before he goes to bed. Before I go to bed, I get him up and sleepwalk him to the bathroom. And still he wets the bed and sleeps right through it. He doesn't even know it till the morning. So deep sleep. The second thing is parents will frequently say things to you like, I restrict fluids after dinner. I take him or her to the bathroom before they go to bed. I walk him or her to the bathroom before I go to bed. And still by 3 a.m., he or she has flooded the bed. Now does that sound like normal patterns of urine production at night? No. So the other issue is inadequate production of ADH during nighttime hours. So these children are producing high volume dilute urine during the nighttime hours and many of them do not wake to the sensation of a full bladder. That's the most prominent theory at this point. Now there's a possibility that this child could have inadequate bladder capacity, but most of those kids will also complain of daytime urgency and frequency, and it's easy to tell if that's an issue by having the child keep a bladder chart over the weekend. What about emotional factors? Because remember, a lot of parents think these kids are acting out. So the important thing to know and to say to parents and to children, this is no one's fault. It's not your fault, it's not the kid's fault, and it's not the parent's fault. This is literally a physiologic thing. It's no more your fault than if you need to wear glasses, or if you have hearing loss, or if you have scoliosis. And it's a problem that can be managed. Now, emotional factors can contribute to secondary enuresis. So let's say you have a child, the child was continent at night for a year, now over the last year they're having bedwetting episodes again. Well, what caused that? Almost always if you track back you find a traumatic event and children regress in response to trauma. Heck, adults regress in response to trauma. So maybe over the past year there was a, a move that was very difficult for the child. You move from this location to this location. Maybe there was a divorce. Maybe there was a death in the family. Maybe there was a birth, there was birth of a sibling that this kid didn't really order up and now the sibling's getting a lot of attention. So almost always you can figure out, oh, this is probably what is triggering this. 
and it helps the parents to understand and to realize the child needs support, might need counseling, does not need punishment. Sleep disorders and sleep apnea play a role in some children. So if you have a child who sleepwalks, bedwetting is sometimes associated with sleepwalking. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine and she said, you know, her son had problems with bedwetting, but they didn't even realize it for a while because he also was a sleepwalker and they didn't realize that. So they kept finding this wet spot beside the plant in the den and they thought it was their dog. They said they had just about killed poor little Fluffy. And then one night, she and her husband are sitting down in the den having a glass of wine and they hear, you know, pitter-patter. They look up and it's their son coming down the stairs, clearly asleep and sleepwalking. Walks over to the plant, drops his pajamas, waters the plant, goes back upstairs. She said they looked at each other and they're like, poor Fluffy. So yes, sleep disorder, sleep apnea may be a contributing factor. Genetic link, very well established. If you have one parent who was enuretic, your chances of being enuretic go way up. If you have two parents, it's well over 50%. So definitely a genetic link, which makes sense because what's the pathology? Delay and maturation of some nerve pathways. So you can see that genetics could play a role there. Some parents think that food allergies play a role. This has never been proven in any controlled studies, but you'll still hear people talking about that. So clinical presentation, very straightforward. The child wets the bed. It's usually high volume. Most kids are dry during the day unless something else is going on. History and physical, just standard. Important to do a urinalysis to rule out infection. Important to rule out retention, usually with just an ultrasound. And you do want to um, determine whether the child has adequate capacity. And that's pretty easy to do by having the parents keep a bladder chart over the weekend, put the little hat in the toilet, or have the um, little boy boy into a urinal so that you document capacity and make sure that's adequate. So you're going to treat any reversible factors. These kids respond very well to behavioral therapy and there's also some pharmacologic options. And again, we'll go over those in detail. You thought you would never see this slide. <laughs> Here's the summary slide. So we know that incontinence is a very prevalent condition with a major impact on quality of life and that nurses can play a very important role in making things a lot better for these patients. We know that reversible factors play the role in transient incontinence and frequently play a contributing role for established incontinence. So you always start by screening for, identifying, and treating reversible factors. When you look at chronic incontinence, incontinence that persists past the point at which reversible factors have been corrected, these are the major types. Stress incontinence, which is caused by sphincter dysfunction. Urge incontinence, which is caused by bladder dysfunction. Functional incontinence, which is caused literally by functional factors outside of the urinary tract, like cognitive impairment or severe immobility. Neurogenic bladder, as it suggests, loss of neural control. Retention 
due to either bladder outlet obstruction or a very weak detrusor muscle. And finally, in uresis due to deep sleep and or failure to produce adequate amounts of ADH. So what you want to know is, yes, we have covered a ton of content, but we're going to come back to this over and over. In the next class, we'll be talking about assessment, and you'll hear a lot of this again. And then we're going to talk about management of each type of incontinence. So everything you heard today, you'll hear again. Thanks for hanging in there. You're done. <laughs>